Yeah, I have uh, my co-writer Brandon here with me for the podcast tonight. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Excellent. So, uh, we just wanted to ask you a few questions about your upcoming movie. Sure, of course, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, are, you, are we going to, is this going to go live tonight? Maybe I'm just misinformed, or are we recording this, kind of pre-taping something? We're pre-recording it. Yeah, we're recording. Okay. Yeah. Are, are you guys hearing me okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're fine. Yeah, you you sound good. Okay, sounds good, guys. All right. So, what inspired you to be a film director? Well, hold on for a second. Are we actually beginning now? Or oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My fault. Yeah, we are beginning now. <laughs> yeah. Usually they give me a little lead in. So. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm not I'm not answering off the record or what's going on. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, uh, what inspired you to become a film director? Uh, well, a lot of things. I had, you know, I'd, I'd been a, a writer in the film business for a long, long time, um, about 20 years, actually, starting with um, uh, Halloween 6, which uh, a lot of horror films are familiar with, the uh, history of that movie. And, um, you know, I went on to produce several movies, one of which was a, was a pretty big hit called Haunting Connecticut. came out in 2009. It was a Lionsgate mm-hmm. movie. Um, it did really well. And I really loved that process. So, I don't know, as my career has sort of evolved over the years, I've become, I, I don't know, like most things, you branch out a little bit more. And you expand your horizon. I think, we, I think, the, um, I think the, uh, the directing bug is always there, but I think I felt like I needed to be ready to do that. So, um, so I spent, you know, I spent a lot of years as a writer and then kind of, you know, I felt like really had gone as far as I want to go in terms of just being the writer uh, and kind of, you know, kind of really learning that craft and, and making that, you know, kind of a mainstay of my life. I just decided that, you know, let's produce some things. And, and I had mm-hmm. fun doing that. And that, I followed that up. I'm not sure if you guys know about the documentaries I've done. Um, yeah. Again, the Elm Street Legacy, Crystal Lake Memories, Screen Inside Story. So, you know, it was really fun, and I felt really fortunate to go back and kind of like trace the history of all of my horror favorites over the years. So that was kind of an interesting sideline to my career, and um, and I directed all of those. So it was felt like the next step was to direct a, a feature. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you bring up A Nightmare on Elm Street because the first guest we had on the podcast was uh, Mick Strawn, and he did the production design of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4. Yeah, sure, I love Mick, and uh, I've known him for many years. Really? Oh, yeah, he was really cool for to us. Yeah, he's great. Nice. Uh, actually, I can ask you a couple questions now. Uh all right, so when did you realize that you wanted to direct as a career? Like, when did the light bulb just uh, come on and you're like, you know what, I want to do this? Well, I mean, I guess, like I said in my, my, my prior answer, I, I, I kind of, everything sort of evolved, you know. It wasn't like I made a conscious decision one day, you know. Mm. I, I, I did <laughs> started making movies when I was a kid, um, and I was directed them. I think I directed them. I did them. I did <laughs> You know, as you as you break into the you know the real film business, you kind of find 
your way in, and I think I found my way in initially as, as a writer, which and I think, you know, the writing part of it has always been something that I embrace because I really feel like that's the place where you can, like, really create the story and create the world, and there's nobody there to tell you what to do or not to do. It's right. kind of your own, you know, you're bringing everything you have to the table through the writing process, and it's something that, you know, it's very difficult. Um and very lonely sometimes. Uh, I, you know, I'm really glad that I got to cut my teeth as a writer because then I understood when I went to produce and direct, you know, I knew, I knew the value of the words, you know, so I became a producer that kind of fought for writers and really fought for the vision that was on the page. And then now as a director and a writer, but it's sort of doing all three, I, it's nice because I can kind of balance the three a little bit more if I hadn't started where I did. If I just jumped into directing, I don't know if I would have had as much um, respect necessarily for the writing process or right. even right. producing, which is a, in a way a thankless job. Uh, so I, I am glad that I've been able to, you know, kind of do all three things. So it's been, been quite a learning, learning curve over the years. And that's an interesting thing that you said that about producing being kind of like a thankless job. I'm one of the people that goes to see who the producer of the movie is before I kind of get excited for it or I kind of know my expectations because producers seem to do a lot and sometimes they have a lot of hits and sometimes they have a lot of misses and sometimes they yeah. have a good background of producing good quality films mm -hmm. so i always see who does the producing the writing and directing of movies instead of just mm -hmm. the stars of the movie itself yeah and i think maybe what i mean by thankless job is kind of the one where it's not like as a writer, those are your words on the screen. As a director, those are your images on screen. As, a, as an actor, that's you. You know, you're portraying the character. So, as a producer, it's it, you're kind of in that like world of like, well, what do you do? <laughs> you know? yeah. And you don't you don't necessarily know the nuts and bolts and the, and the difficulty of that job. You know, there's so much to it, and it's a twenty four seven job, and you're. You're navigating all kinds of you know, politics and the, and the money part of it, and, and dealing with talent, and making deals, and contracts, and budgets, and it's it's really, really a very, very difficult job. Um, and takes somebody who has a real serious business mind um, to be able to do that and do it really well. So I think when you see, like you said, the producers that you, you look for that have done a lot of hit movies and what have you, just think. I mean, I think about the enormous task of, of, you know, I think of producers like John Landau who does all of um, Cameron's films. I mean, just, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like there's Avatar. like line producers uh, and all of those small kind mm -hmm. of producers within producing yep. of a film itself. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And then a lot of times, there's, 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 sometimes there's, you know, a lot of them credit. Sometimes those people weren't directly even involved in in, in Movie. I mean, on, on a movie that I was a producer on uh, a couple years ago, which was interestingly uh, Amityville, the Weeping, there were, I think, it felt to me like there were like 20 producers on that movie, and I think there were only three that had anything to do with it. So a lot of it was just contracts and people who had rights to things, or had sold rights to things, and 
know, a lot of it's just dealing. And so I, I guess I just tend to be one of those purists who I want to know who really produced that movie. You yeah. know, they put them at the front of the movie, and then everybody who didn't really do the work should go at the end. It's like from the producers of. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a, it's thankless in the way that I yeah. think most people who see films, you guys are big fans of, of filmmaking in general. Uh, so uh, not everyone, I think, understands what what that means to, to produce a film. I mean, it has to do with just the money, but it has so much more, and mm-hmm. it just it's it's a very very uh, difficult and um, time-consuming job. Um, and they don't get you know they, because it's not necessarily a creative job. Uh, well, I think I argue sometimes it is, um, but it you know I think some producers who are really some of just some of the greatest people I know who don't often get their praises sung as much as uh, writers and directors and actors. Do you like producing or directing more? Like, what do you like? What do you prefer? Gosh, I don't know, guys. I, I for me, <laughs> I think they're all incredibly difficult jobs, but I think they're also really rewarding, but in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, writing, as I mentioned, I feel like it's the one that's the most solitary of the jobs. I mean, until you're really in production, it's really your imagination, and it's you and a computer, <laughs> essentially, or notebook, <laughs> if you do the old way. Um, but... For me, I think, I don't know, directing is also difficult because I feel like you're really on the spot and everybody, you know, you're the commander of the ship and everybody is looking to you for very, very quick answers. You have to learn to be very quick on your toes by making decisions. Um, and sometimes lightning fast decisions. Um, you know, you got five more minutes of light, what are you going to shoot? Um, so it's, it's stressful in a different way, but... I, for me, I, I enjoy the processes of filmmaking. It's what I do. It's what I love. It's what I've done for many years now. So I don't know if I can say love one above the other, but I think because I started as a writer, I think for me, story is worth that. So I feel like everything else is in service of story. That sounds like that makes sense. You know, we're all like as mm-hmm. a producer and as a director. You know, everyone, photographer and scripture, everybody is working in service of that story, and the script is like the, the blueprint of the movie. So I still, I, I have a lot of reverence for the script and the writing phase of it. So for me, I would say, if I had to choose one, I would say the writing, because I feel like there's, that's where the, the creative impulse or the, uh, the grain of that idea is born. The one about haunting in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, so what was it like working on the haunting of Connecticut? Can you hear me? Yeah, you guys are fading in and out a little bit. Yeah, there's a storm going on, so it's gonna, you know, it's cutting <laughs> oh, us in and out. Yeah. Um, got it. Got it. What I was trying to ask was, what was it like working on the haunting of Connecticut? Mm-hmm. Haunting in Connecticut. Yep. What was it? What was it like? Like, did you? Did it go smoothly smooth, or was it difficult at well, times? Or um, mostly, I would say that one was smooth. It took a long time to get that movie made. It's been kind of this process of development for several years, but oh, in wow. terms of Hollywood development, <laughs> yeah. it was probably shorter than a lot of films that you know get kind of lost in the development hell phase but uh, yeah uh, but no I, mostly it went very smoothly it was shot um, in Winnipeg 
Canada. Um, you know, we had a Oscar-nominated actress from Virginia Madsen, who is, you know, a huge horror fan. So that really, I felt like, brought... Yeah, was she in Candyman? Yeah, she was the star of Candyman, right? Yeah. She's also like, you know, she, she her favorite movie in the world is Halloween, so... <laughs> she is, you know, at her heart, I think, a horror fangirl of... Mm. <laughs> she really... Was excited, you know, to be in a movie like this. She hadn't done one for a while. She'd been nominated for an Oscar for Sideways a couple years before that, and she was just game, you know, and, and really good. And then we had a young actor, Kyle Gellner, who's gone on and done lots of movies since then. Um, just it was it was a nice it was a nice camaraderie, I would say, in that movie. And so cool. I was lucky. I later I got to uh, to produce all of the bonus content went on the Blu-ray and, and did all the interviews with the real family behind that story and they'd never like they'd done anything they'd spoken of the true haunting so I kind of was able to even bring some of my documentary uh, experience to that movie so that was kind of fun so I kind of wanted to ask you about the Amityville murders did you kind of take mm-hmm. some of your documentary style into making your upcoming movie a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think I can't help it. I, I don't know if you guys know, but I had actually, the way my involvement in Amityville began was, which was like going on 20 years ago now with a documentary that I produced. It was my first documentary that I ever produced and directed. It was on the History Channel, and it later ended up, I think, on the, the, the box set of the Amityville horror movies um, as, a, you know, as a bonus feature. Uh, so I did a two-hour documentary called Amityville the Haunting and then there was a second part called Amityville Horror or Hoax that appeared on History Channel back then and through that mm-hmm. project I was really fortunate enough to have met all of the people at least the ones that were still with us um, some we've lost along the way um, since then but I got to interview them all I got to know them I even got to know a lot of the people on a very personal level and the story had always affected me as a, as a kid, you know, I mean, I was young when it came out, and I remember it being, like, scary, and, and I remember the movie, and even the second one, which is the one that scared me the most, <laughs> you know, just because I think of the way it was made, and um, the tone of it all. And so I always had a, a, a question on my mind, and I think a lot of people did, was like, well, what happened? You know, was that, I say it was true, and some people say it was made mm-hmm. up, and so I, I kind of went back and did my own investigation, and that became this, this two-part documentary. So I didn't really know what I was going to do at the beginning. I was just kind of interested. I thought, maybe, well, maybe it's a book, or maybe it is a documentary, or maybe it's a movie. So all these years later, um, we we went through lots of years of, we'll call it development hell, with um, various parties. Um, the movie rights ended up with Dimension, mm-hmm. uh, the Weinstein Company. And that resulted in a movie that unfortunately kind of got lost in the in the wave of controversy and right. the yeah. unfortunate outcome of the Weinstein scandal. Oh, yeah. And that movie really just kind of got, you know, it was kind of like a, um, you know, kind of a casualty of war in a yeah. way. So it was really sad, you know, a lot of people worked really hard on that movie and, and it just never really got the, the audience that I think it, it deserved. But um, it was also, unfortunately, too, I think the director ended up walking away pretty burned because they the studio tampered with the movie. And <laughs> to me, it sounded a lot like yeah. something that happened to a certain movie I had written 
for the same studio, uh-huh. you know, 15 years before. Um, so, you know, there was some meddling with the cut of the film, and it just, it, it just, it kind of just all went south, unfortunately. Um, although I've gotten a lot of comments from people over the past year, year and a half, saying how much they enjoyed it. So, I was last year, maybe last year, maybe early part of 2017, um, meeting with some investors and some distributors about upcoming ideas, and we talked about uh, you know ways in which we can tell um, you know interesting kind of true life hauntings and stuff like that. And you know, of course, as with anything, Amityville came out, and you know they're like, well, is there isn't there part of a story that was never told? Is there anything else? I said, well, you know, the one that hasn't really been told in any way in terms of its you know, like the true, the true part of that story, um, in terms of the, you know, a depiction or dramatic retelling of it would be the mass murders of the DeFeo family in 1974. Now, Amityville 2, to be clear, was kind of about the DeFeos, but it wasn't really them. It was a kind of a, a make-believe family that kind of resembled them. And so I thought, what an interesting opportunity to go back and tell that story kind of through the prism of time, of what we all know about Amityville, we think we know about Amityville, and kind of look back on it and say, well, you know, and I think there's so many weird things about crime that are so disturbing that have never really adequately been explained by law enforcement, um, such as, you know, the entire family being found face down in their beds, they were all shot uh, in their backs or the backs of their heads, um, none of them ever moved from their beds, and this is when this young son, who was 23 at the time, uh, which just, you know, would pick up his father's hunting rifle and walk through, through that large house in Amityville one night at around 3 in the morning and fired this, you know, 35 millimeter, I think it was a Marlin hunting rifle, in this house in the middle of the night, and no one heard that, allegedly, because... If I heard a gunshot like that in my house in the middle of the night, I would jump out of my bed and out the window <laughs> so fast you wouldn't even see me leaving. <laughs> yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah, you I know, would be out. Nobody fast moved. Too. I would spaz out. You know, they, yeah, I mean it's it's really really frightening and 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 makes you kind of question what the hell really happened. So um, none of the victims moved. They also did autopsies on the bodies. There were no drugs administered to them because there was a theory, well, maybe he poisoned them or, or put a sedative in their food or their drink um, that night so that they slept through it. Nope, there were no drugs. There was, and they also looked for remnants of a silencer that might have muffled the gunshots. There was no silencer uh, because it would have left fragments on the crime scene. Nothing like that. So, And then not only that, but you think about, this is, you know, it's not like in the movies that you see where the house is sort of like out on the water on, on those pictures, you know, waterfront by itself. Now, in reality, the house sits between two other houses that we close. I mean, yeah. the street. It's a very small bedroom-type community. Um, and how is it that none of those neighbors reported hearing any of those gunshots either? Yeah. You could hear, I would hear if somebody was firing seven or eight rifle shots in the middle of the night, I would hear that in my neighborhood. And I would remember that, especially if I saw bodies being taken out of the house. So it is it is baffling and it's frightening and it makes you wonder what is it 
that may have really happened. And listen, I don't know that if it was supernatural or ghosts in the house or evil spirits or demons, but there were just a lot of strange things. Um, so the movie that I made, the one that's coming out, Animal Evil Murders, kind of takes a look at three different scenarios. It doesn't play them, it's only a continuous movie, but it kind of presents the family as being highly dysfunctional, which allegedly, according to all the court documents and transcripts that I've read, very dysfunctional. The father was highly physically abusive to the kids, to the wife. Um, and the son had these very strange messages of what love was from his father. On one hand, he would beat him up. On the other hand, he would buy him a new car. You know, so there was this kind of love-hate thing festering and growing. So we portray that. And then the second part is, but DeFeo was, a, you know, supposedly a, a, a very, very uh, severe drug addict. Uh, you know, he was doing all kinds of things in the early 70s, everything from hallucinogens and heroin and, you know, you name, you name the drug, he supposedly either had tried it or was on it. Um, Right. So we present that angle. And then, of course, there's the one that you kind of have to go to with something like this was, was the house haunted? Had they awakened something in this house? There were some stories yeah. about how he and his sister liked to conjure, you know? They played, you know, like a lot of kids probably back then, maybe today, but especially back then. When, you know, they were playing with, you know, witchcraft or... Oh, Ouija boards and or, stuff or like that. Ouija boards. Yeah, and, yeah, and, I, and I think they were kind of... <laughs> Playing in that world of, of, of dabbling in occultism, but I don't know that they were serious occultists. I don't think that was the case, but I think it's been said that, that maybe they were dabbling in that. And then there's, you look at the history of the house later, kind of, you know, and some people dispute it. Supposedly it had been this the site, that whole area around Ocean Avenue, the house is built, had been at one point a, a burial ground for Native Americans, or even like an encampment at one point it was said that. It was uh, an encampment for the sick and the diseased members that died, and they would sort of banish them to this part of Long Island, and they would sort of die of exposure. And there was also part of the legend, I'll, I'll call it part of the legend of the story, is that they supposedly banished and then buried the tribal enemies face down. And it was kind of a mockery to say forever they'll have to face hell by right. burying them face down. So, I mean, again, that kind of like makes you wonder, so is, is, well, I mean, all the DeFeos were found face down and then moved. I mean, is there some kind of supernatural weird connection to the, to the land? So, you know, the movie kind of teases a little bit of all of that stuff, but it doesn't necessarily say it's one or the other. Um, I think it's, you know, with something like this, that's such an enduring mystery, you kind of have to put it out there and let people think what they want to think, draw their own conclusions. So that was, that was sort of my approach. And I just got done reading this book called The Demonologist about Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that was mm -hmm. one of their huge cases in that book. And it's just so many things can be discussed right. about the Amityville about horror. And it can just yeah, go yeah. on and on from all different oh, yeah. perspectives. Totally. Yep, it's like, I always think of Amity, there's like this layers of onion, like you think you get to it, and there's another layer, and it's just here, you know, it just kind of keeps going, and there's so many different theories, and, you know, there was a, a really respected parapsychologist, by the name of Hans Holzer, who uh, was... 
Hello? Yeah, are you there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, the ghosts are already affecting her. Yes, they don't, want you, they don't want you to talk on the phone because they're already trying to... I don't know how much you got, but uh, this really respected parapsychologist named Hans Holzer, um, uh. <laughs> who I also was fortunate enough to have known before she passed on. Um, he had gone to the house um, after the murders and after the Lutz family had fled in, the, in right. 1976, and he had gone in there with a psychic medium, pretty well-known woman named Ethel Johnson Myers, and it was she who had allegedly contacted the spirit of this kind of angry Indian chief who felt that the land had been desecrated and that he mm-hmm. wanted to rid it of, you know, these invaders. So it's all very, <laughs> very strange. And it all kind of makes you go, wow, that is very odd. Now, listen, all of the, the family since the Lutzes in the 70s have said, no, there's something wrong with this house. It's a beautiful home. Um, but I can tell you as a documentarian, when I went to the town and was not greeted openly, let me tell you, and I, on one hand, I understand it because for years they've kind of been fighting the reputation that Amityville has kind of, you know, gotten because of the movie and the books. But, you know, for a town that's called the Friendly Town, which Amity means friendship, friendly, um, they're not that friendly, at least to outsiders. Right. <laughs> Asking about the house, they'll often tell you, oh, walk down to the end of the pier and keep walking. Were you able to meet the Warrens, like at all? The who? The so, Warrens? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I met okay. um, Lorraine uh, several times and um, Ed before he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in their home. I was in that museum that I'm sure you guys remember from The Conjuring. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Where they kept Annabelle. I, I was, I, in fact, I remember being there once at midnight with my camera crew. So you saw um, Annabelle. <laughs> I did see the real Annabelle. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, I did. And she not quite as ominous to look at in person as she was in movies because she's kind of like a giant raggedy ant doll yeah. in reality. Um, but it's creepy to be in that museum where they have kind of collected all these artifacts from their cases. And all I can really say, and people question it all the time, is that the Warrens and certainly the Les family, their experience changed them forever as who they were as people, as who they were as a family, I think. They don't always agree as a family. I mean, I know sons have, you know, come out in some pretty pretty, um, pretty harsh ways in, in, in talking about how their stepfather or their adopted father had been um, not the best role model, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I didn't see that. I, I knew George Lutz before he passed for many years, and I actually knew to be kind and amiable and funny and actually quite generous you know he was like the kind of guy that always gave his last dollar that he had in his pocket to a homeless person um in terms of this rumor of him dabbling or having some knowledge of the occult i think that's ridiculous i think the only cult knowledge he had especially at the time was what's going on in our house what is right. happening here so i think he, he probably went to a used bookstore and picked up some books on witchcraft and this and that and the other because he wanted to know what was going on but he wasn't an occultist he wasn't a satanist <laughs> he wasn't levitating objects he was a, a family man and i think probably had his own business, no pun intended that he was dealing with but i don't think he was conjuring spirits right. to try to do harm anyone um or acting as if he was anton LaVey or something like that but uh, yeah he was more interested in it i think 
Yeah, I think he was more interested in it and wondering how the hell he was going to get rid of it so they could live in peace in this house because they loved the house. You know, I mean, Kathy, when they walked into the foyer of that house, she she fell in love. She had the biggest Mm -hmm. smile he'd ever seen, and she um, said, this is home. You know, this is where I want to be. And, you know, then people had claimed, I think, that they didn't have money and they wanted to get out of this mortgage. Well, in my research, I did, which was extensive, they had, in fact, that's not even bank statements at the time. They had just sold two houses, his house and Kathy's house that she'd had from her previous marriage. And so with the combined sale of those homes and then the down payment they put on the Amityville house, there was enough money in the bank to make that mortgage easily for over a year. And the bank, at that time, wouldn't, if interest rates were higher than they are now, and all that, they wouldn't have given them the loan if they didn't have money to pay for the mortgage. So that wasn't, that kind of blew that theory out of the water, that they were just trying to get out of the house, to get out of making payments on it. Right. Um, and then just the other people that were in their lives, uh, I believe it was Kathy's sister-in-law had an experience. They would invite people over, as they would tell me, just to hear the thing going on on the floor above them. There was nobody up there. Just to know that they weren't crazy, this was actually happening. Um, they described the last night in the house as just coming so bad that they just laughed. And it wasn't dramatic like in the movie where it was thunder and lightning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they ran to get the dog. And <laughs> well, yeah, they kind of have to you know? make it more somatic <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they do that. Right. Well, they, they, they certainly made it, you know, bigger than life, which is what mm-hmm. movies are. So, you know, I think sometimes people use that as a reason for saying it was a hoax because, well, they didn't. There wasn't a storm that night or something like that. Right. So, but that's the movie, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I don't think that that necessarily... So, but the way they described it to me was they, they talked to Father Ray, who was there, the priest, and they'd come in and had his own experiences in the home before they moved in. The day they moved in, he came in and blessed him. And he had had an uncomfortable encounter in the sewing room. In fact, it was so uncomfortable that apparently he had told them to not use that room as a, as a, uh, as a bedroom. I didn't like the vibe he got in that room at all. Um, it wasn't like in the movie where thousands of flies attacked him, <laughs> but he apparently did hear a voice saying to get out, mm-hmm. and he felt as if he was slapped by some kind of an invisible presence that he would later say. Right. But um, so, so they're on his at his request or his advice, I guess I call it. They he said, I don't I don't think it's helpful for you and the kids to be in the house any longer. Pack up some bags and get out of there. So they did that, and then by the kid, time the kids got home from school that afternoon, they were packed. And they got in the car and they drove to Kathy's mother's house uh, and never went back. <laughs> so they went back to collect some things, and, and, they, and I believe some friends had put up whatever was in the house up for auction or at a garage sale or something like that. Um, but they left the house, they didn't sell it. They gave it back to the bank. They lost their down payment. They didn't contract. I mean, as a fact, that came later. Uh, it's just don't line up. If they had mm-hmm. had some pre-existing contract, that that would have been reflected in the in the contracts I've seen. Um, in fact, I, they were some average citizens. They didn't know anyone in the book industry or in the publishing world right. or in the you know movie. Certainly not in the movie business. The one was thinking, you know, what do we do? But Kathy had a like a hairstylist, a hairdresser, and she was telling this hairdresser the story of what had happened in the home. And she's like, well, I think that you should, you know, before this gets out of control, and it already had been kind of become like a little local interest news story within the local paper, 
people were trying to get to them and talk to them and talk to the kids about it. And, and they were like, listen, we don't want something to happen that the story is not, you know, let's just wrap it up with a, a book of our own, uh, have somebody write it and be done. So this, this hairdresser, I think, that introduced them to um, an editor at a little publishing company called um, Press Hall out of New Jersey. And um, they met Jay Anson, who was this writer of documentaries. And Jay started writing the book, and I think at the beginning of the process, he had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And, but he had a, I could be wrong on this, but I believe he had a deadline on the book, and so he wrote the majority of the Amityville Horror book from hospital bed. And all he really had to go on were these audio cassettes that the Lutz family had made after leaving the house at Kathy's mom's and they sat around and they kind of said, let's, let's, let's record what ex- we experienced and we'll put it down in some way so that there's some record of this. Right. So that's what they did and that's really what Anson had to go on. So, um, and I think, you know, the reason they say it's a hoax is because, oh, they changed the date and this mm-hmm. and that. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> you know, I don't know that he necessarily was looking at it as a, yeah, as a formal, you know, legal document of their experience. Mm-hmm. I think he's writing a, a book to probably to entertain, but as well as to kind of tell, you know, a, a true story that, you know, clearly had scared the shit out of his family. I was going to ask, um, so since I know that you're making that transition from producing to directing, um, and now nowadays, if you've noticed, there's a resurgence of horror television shows like American mm-hmm. Horror Story, Channel Zero, etc. Sure. Uh, yeah. Have you thought about jumping on that train and maybe trying to t- take your shot at like uh, directing some some horror television or some TV? Yeah, you know, it's it's. I actually have a, a project that I've been developing for a while. I can't really talk about titles yet, uh, but it's based on a pretty well known movie, a very well-known movie, um, that we are attempting to sell as a, as a TV series. So um, that is kind of something I've been working on. <laughs> I'm not doing all these other things. So I actually made three movies in the past year. Um, will be is the first, and it's the first that will be coming out. And then I followed that up with one that I'm actually really excited about. It's an original script of mine and I also directed and it's called The Haunting of Sharon Tate um, and it stars Hilary Duff as Sharon Tate and uh, pretty terrifying I have to say I'm really looking forward to that one also oh thank you I think I think you will not be disappointed <laughs> yeah, Hilary Duff's great it's, uh, so. we, we've we've tested the movie a little bit and shown it to some some people and um some people just haven't been able to get through it. It's just too difficult. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's not the kind of thing that you would imagine it to be. We didn't go back to retell the story we've heard a thousand times about Charles Manson and his family and mm-hmm. And Roman Polanski and all that. Yeah, it's not that at all. It's really a movie told through Sharon Tate's eyes right. in her last days. And the question of the movie becomes, if you knew your fate, could you change your fate? Hmm. Wow. And that is how it plays out. So it is a bit of a revenge movie, is what I can tell you. Oh. Interesting. <laughs> I, have to, I, have to look, I have to look out for it. 
What else do you have? Uh, yeah, yeah, for, uh, it should be coming out uh, mid part of next year, I think, probably spring or summer of next oh, year. Cool, cool. Um, what other projects do you have in the oven that you're working on? Uh, we are in post production on one now that doesn't have a title, official title yet, but it is about the final days of Nicole Brown Simpson's life. Interesting. Which is, yeah, wow. one that kind of came to me and was, you know, sort of pitched to me and we developed it and shortly, shortly after the Sharon Tate project uh-huh. and uh, Mina Suvari, who's a great actress, um, she plays uh, Nicole. And it deals with a little known sort of, I'll call it a subplot of the, of the story again that we know. And it's not a movie that's going back to kind of like reinvent it or say that, you know, the person who murdered them didn't, didn't do it. But it sort of brings up another element of the mystery um, and a character that entered mm-hmm. Nicole's life in reality around the time just before her murder, but a month before her murder, um, a serial killer named Glenn Rogers, who mm-hmm. um, she befriended or hired as a, as a painter for her condo. And the fact that this serial killer had been in her home and Zach later bragged that he was the one that did it. Um, so again, it doesn't, this, this isn't a movie saying, oh, you know, OJ didn't do it and he was this innocent man who was wrongly accused. It, it sort of presents, in a little bit like Amityville, it sort of presents these different scenarios of, right. well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that, just because, you know, some of these things are so tragic and so mysterious and there's never a satisfying conclusion to the true story, we'll never really know. I mean, until OJ confesses in a very real way, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this movie kind of presents a little piece of a story that we may not have heard before. So pretty, pretty in- interesting and frightening. Sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been a busy year. Um, <laughs> Again, you know, Amityville Murders is coming out in uh, November. We're actually uh, screening it as a world premiere at Screen Fest here in Los Angeles, and that'll be on mm-hmm. October 9th. And tickets are available right now, and they're free on Eventbrite or through the ScreenFest.com website. Um, so we're excited to see people come out and, and finally get a, a look at our movie. If I still was in town, I would totally love to go and see it. But oh, yeah. bad. I used. To, I'm from. I'm from Los Angeles. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. What part? Uh, I was born in North Hollywood, and I lived in Sherman okay. Oaks up until we moved oh, about I, five years ago. I currently live in Sherman Oaks. Oh, so. word! Nice. <laughs> yeah. I lived on Hazeltine. So. Oh, right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We could. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That's funny. <laughs> Could have been neighbors. That is funny. Yeah? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Did you did you ever see uh, Stanley from The Office? Because I know he lives, like, right there. Um, I, You know what? You see people all the time That's at that true, house. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, that is true. Can't go grocery shopping without Unvendura Boulevard without seeing somebody. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. uh, but, yeah, yeah. So, um but yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, I, I've been a fan since I was a kid. You know, the I can't express how much gratitude I have for my life and the, things mm-hmm. that I, the opportunities I've been given, and mm-hmm. 
the things I've worked really hard for, but um, it's just really fun, you know, all these years later to still be active and doing mm-hmm. what I love and, and having a good time and meeting great people and telling stories that are, you know, not really, you know, an evolution from, say, the Halloween movies, mm-hmm. which are great and hearing good things about the new one, but it's it's nice to sort of step up, up away from that kind of horror filmmaking for a little bit and, um, and do things that are a little, maybe a little bit more cerebral mm-hmm. and um, less Hollywood, more you know, like, you know. Especially when they're based on true stories, right. like in Amityville or Karen Tate and Cool Brown Simpson, those movies that, okay. you know, I know it's controversial on one level, but on the other level, I feel like there's a little bit more fertile ground to kind of tell stories that are frightening because they're true mm-hmm. or based on truth. And, um, and I think there's, especially when I, and I also really love strong female characters. I think in a day like now, especially with, you know, the Me Too movement and everything that's mm-hmm. going on in our world. Absolutely. It's, it's important to kind of have a, a really positive portrayal that women who, who can kind of stand on their own and fight back on their mm-hmm. own and, 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 and not, you know, be the, the damsel in distress. Right. And yeah. um, so that that's important in terms of just my, my telling of these stories. Okay. Well, we don't want to take too much of your time, but thank you for coming on and talking yeah, to us for a while. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Definitely, definitely. Well, definitely let me know this is on and our website and point people in your direction. All right, well, have a good night, Daniel. Yeah, thank, take care. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. Yep, absolutely. Take care. You too, thanks.